Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's get to it. Our conversation of the day on market economics, the state of the American economy. Jan Hatzius joins us. He is with Goldman Sachs. Jan, I've got eight ways to go, but I want to fold it into a slowdown in the fiscal oomph to America. Did you adjust your GDP down because the fiscal party is over? The fiscal punch bowl is being taken away. That's certainly the reason why we think the economy is going to slow quite a bit in 2022. We have it going to just under 2% by the fourth quarter of next year. In the near term, I think there are still some reasons to expect stronger growth. The trend is down, but I don't think it's going to be a straight, straight line. We'll still get some boost from the receding Delta wave. Consumers have a lot of pent-up savings, and I think the inventory cycle is also going to boost growth. But these are all relatively short-term drivers. And going forward, you know, further on, I do think growth is going to be significantly slower. Whatever the flavor of inflation here, what does it do to the wage in the inflation-adjusted wage? I think that really depends on whether you look at the top end of of the wage distribution or the bottom end. I think... At the bottom end, we've seen a sharp acceleration in wage growth, we think to about 6% if we adjust for all the uh, changes in composition. And that's obviously the strongest we've had in many years. I do think that the expanded unemployment benefits were a big driver of that. And now that those have ended, I think we'll see a, a deceleration there. But in the middle and upper end of the income distribution, we'll probably see continued gradual wage acceleration as the labor market tightens. And I still think it is it is tightening. So overall, we have wages going sort of roughly sideways in the three and a half to four percent range. That's our current estimate of the underlying pace. And then the real wage you know, really is going to depend on what happens to inflation. In the short term, there is no real wage growth. In fact, real wages uh, probably declining slightly because inflation is is higher than that. Longer term, as you go into 2022, I think we'll again have real wage gains. So, Jan, just help me understand next year. 4% is the baseline for the year, but I'm more interested in the back half of 22. Are you saying 1.5 to 2% GDP growth by the time we get to the back end of 2022? That's right. The 4% is in part being driven by the strength in the later part of 2021 that has a statistical carryover into the year. But as you go through the year, and especially into the back half, we have it at 3% in Q3 and then 175 in Q4. So So definitely a, a trend towards slowdown, consistent with some of these temporary positives petering out as you go through the year. Jan, how do you think the Federal Reserve will respond to that? Will they be looking at the cumulative gains that you've pointed out will still be decent in the labour market? Or will they be worried about growth slowing back below 2%? Well, so near term, of course, you know, tapering is very likely to be announced at the next meeting. That's going to take until the middle of 2022 
And then I think the question is, where is growth? Where is the labor market? Where is inflation? Under our forecast, growth is much more moderate and inflation is on its way back down to something like 2% on core PCE. In that environment, I don't think they're going to move directly to rate hikes. And we have the hikes not starting until 2023. But of course, it's really going to depend on the, on the data and how they compare with the criteria that the committee has laid out. They've been very clear about that. Well, tapering isn't going to help much in reducing the supply side inflationary pressures that are out there. You could argue there's limited options for the Fed to do anything about that. Are the ripple effects, though, of that being more persistent than maybe expected being underestimated? The ripple effects from the uh, supply side shortages, it's yes. certainly taking longer. And that, I think that's, uh, you know, pretty clear in the inflation numbers in, you know, I think a good indicator, obviously only one industry is used cars where auction prices again rose in September after several months of declines. So I do think in the, in the next several months, we'll still have a significant inflation issue. We think poor PCE inflation by the end of the year is at four and a quarter percent, up from 3.6 percent at the moment. As you go into 2022, though, slower growth in demand and probably also a redirection to some degree of that demand from the, the goods sector. Right now, it's very concentrated in the goods sector. It's probably going to normalize somewhat and some of it is going to move into services. You know, I think that is going to result in uh, you know, relaxation, basically, of these, of these supply bottlenecks and declining goods prices. But we're not there yet. In terms of supply issues, we also have a real energy crunch out there in the world, and that has driven crude oil prices to now $82 a barrel on WTI. What is the real economic impact of crude north of 80? I think, again, it adds to the near-term stagflation narrative. It's bad for growth. But it, you know, at the same time, boosts inflation. Mainly headline, there, there's not a major impact on the core numbers there. The, the, the high numbers there are really driven by other factors. Mm -hmm. But it's all pointing in the, in the same direction in, in terms yeah. of weight on growth and uh, making, making um, inflation higher. Jan, long ago and far away, a younger Hatzius defined the housing market in America is we saw housing prices collapse. Let's go to your Brookings effort here. The balance sheet effects of the home price downturn. We need a rewrite. Jan Hatzius on the balance sheet effects of the home price upturn. What do you make of this boom, Jan? What does it mean for our viewers and listeners? Well, I think it is one of the items on the strong side of the ledger. And one reason, I think, why uh, we are getting a, a good amount of balance sheet support that is offsetting to some degree the negative fiscal impulse. But I think ultimately the negative fiscal impulse is probably going to be larger, in part because this housing boom, unlike the pre-2007 or 2008 housing boom, doesn't feature the same amount of mortgage equity withdrawal you know, home equity borrowing, uh, cash out refis, et cetera, that was really a, a particular sort of way to turbocharge the housing wealth effect back then. We're not seeing that to the same degree now. 
So I also think the consumption effect isn't going to be as large. Jan, just quickly, a final question. What do you make of this stagflation conversation that's taking place right now? What are you and your team telling clients about it? Well, I think in the near term, it's real. If you just define stagflation as you know, deceleration and growth from the extremely rapid pace that we had a, a couple of quarters ago and much higher inflation than we've had in several decades. I mean, it's just a description of the facts. The question is, I think, what happens as you go into 2022? And I think that's going to be a more traditional, you know, sort of cyclical uh, slowdown narrative also with declines in inflation, but we're not there yet. And we're probably not going to be there for at least a few months longer. Jan, just quickly then, just looking at the Fed forecast, real GDP next year, they're at 3.8, you're at four. This is for 22. Core PCE, they're at 2.3. Just Jan, just quickly confirm, what are you at for two, for 22 on Core PCE? So on a, uh, for, for Core PCE, by the end of the year, we're at 2%. So a little bit below the Fed's forecast. Uh, for GDP growth, we're at 3.3%. If you look at it on a fourth quarter to fourth quarter basis, right. is the way the, the, the Fed looks at it. Jan, thank you, sir. I appreciate that clarification. Goldman Sachs Chief Economist on the path forward. Jan, thank you very much. So picture the scene. You have won the Nobel Prize in Economics, but you don't know you've won the Nobel Prize in Economics. And Tom, the phone rings. You live in America, on the West Coast, maybe, and you're Bonus round. Do you pick up the phone? Well, I don't know if you pick up the phone, but that is the great, great tradition, and maybe you miss it a few times, as Guido Imbens did this morning. Of the three winners here, this is the gentleman who did the hard work, the math out of Brown University in the house of Tony Lancaster. Guido Imbens has been definitive in econometrics. Think Clive Granger and Robert Engel of San Diego a number of years ago. Guido, this is an award for labor and the choices a society makes in trying to figure out jobs and wages. Discrete choice is the hallmark of your work. What are the modern choices we're making in labor in 2021? Well, thanks. Thanks for, for having me. Uh, so, I mean, first of all, it's just been great sharing this with, with Josh Angris and, and David Carr because they've, they've been such role models for me that they've been so fun to uh, to work with and have as colleagues. Uh, and in addition, kind of Alan Kruger, who's also worked in this, uh, this area. And all three of them kind of have been working on these really important substantive uh, questions. Uh, and having been their colleagues, um, that motivated me to look at a lot of the methodological issues related to uh, to their questions to make their answers more convincing and more credible and hopefully more useful for, for policymakers. I, I look, Guido, at the present work here, and the hallmark of this is to take David Card and Alan Kruger over to what Angrist and Imbens did in econometrics and math, over to the modern technology of Amazon, Target, and the rest getting $16, $17, $18 an hour because they can't find labor. From where you sit, what does the marginal wage do to all of America with Amazon going out looking for the marginal employee? Well, at the moment, I think it's all, all very much in flux uh, after the, the pandemic, which has 
course, has had great effects on uh, on inequality, and it's it's uh, had such an equal impact on different parts of the of the labor market. Uh, and so I think uh, Alan and David's work is still extremely relevant uh, there. And I, uh, and I think the current administration is probably taking it very seriously. Uh. Uh, Guido, obviously your work focused on natural experiments and the actual study of em empirical data. As we talk about monetary policy and a Federal Reserve that wants to operate on actual realized data versus expectations, is that something that can only really be done with hindsight bias? No, I think a lot of these methods are very relevant for for informing uh, future policies. Uh, and a lot of the, the natural experiment literature has also made inroads into macroeconomics. So there's, there's incredibly interesting work uh, going on there. The, early on, the Christian David Roman did very interesting work there. Nowadays, Emi uh, Nakamura and Don Steinson are doing very interesting work trying to also tease out correlation and causality in macroeconomic settings where these questions are even more challenging than in the settings with micro data that uh, David, Josh and I have typically looked at. Uh, Professor Emmons, what is so important here, and I, I think we'll do just one final questionnaire as you go to your massive media day in celebration of this award. And the final question is, we have a certitude about data. It's in our economics. It's in our academics. It's in Wall Street. It's in everything to do with the financial media. You grew up in what I'm going to call the Bayesian house, which is real doubt over nighty incertitude. Are we too confident about our data that we're trying to guess the future on? I think I think that that's a super interesting question. And that's that's something that the does occupy a lot of my of my thinking. Uh, we're trying to I think traditionally we've we've certainly erred on the side of putting too much faith in the in the models. And so a lot of the methods I've been developing have been trying to get away from that and trying to make these methods uh, more robust, but there's, there's ongoing challenges in, uh, in doing so. Professor, before you run, did you miss the phone call? <laughs> what time did they call? Yeah, I, I, missed it. I missed the first phone call. I got the second one. Uh, was it, uh, and so I was, uh, it'd been a long day before, before so I was, I, I, I was sleeping well, <laughs> and it, uh, I wasn't expecting this. There you so go. It was, it was pretty, as is often the way, sir, as is often the way, they miss the phone call. Guido Immens, thank you, sir, and congratulations. Thank you so much, 2021 Nobel Prize for economics winner and Stanford University economics professor Tom. They always miss the call. That's what I find always funny about this. They always miss the call. Right now, and we are well-timed to speak to one of our great labor eco economists. She is inquisitive, to say the least, out of the Michigan shop. Claudia Samjo joins us, always controversial, always opinionated, and knowing that it is a day of celebration in her world, which is labor economics. Claudia, we want to stay on theme, but if I look at Guido Imbens, if I look at Joshua Angrist, and particularly if I look at David Card and Alan Kruger, um, I, I just have to say this is a day of the minimum wage. Fold their work into the observation Amazon has to give out $18 an hour to find someone today. 
Right, so for these Nobel Prize winners today, you know, congratulations. Uh, and, and I agree, there, you can go back to the really pathbreaking work that David Card and Alan Kruger did in the early 1990s, and it was very careful, empirical work. Go out in the world and see what is happening in states that raise minimum wage and states that don't. Now, a lot has happened in terms of research since then, but they at least raise the question that you raise wages and you don't lose out on, on business. It's not bad for the company. Normally, in economics, we'd say this, this is going to be a problem for employers. This is going to be a problem for businesses. And they found in one case, and, and like I said, there's a lot of literature, there's a lot of debate after that about the effects of minimum wage, but it really opened up a conversation. Let's get past our models. Right. And let's go see what's happening. Well, the, the, to all of this and the, and the incredibly acute mathematics of Angris and Emmons as well, also working, I should point out, with Alan Kruger. Claudia Sam, what this comes down to is the reality right now, and I have a question on local economics. Think David Blanchflower at Dartmouth. Is mm -hmm. Amazon, Target, Costco, are they the marginal price determinant of the wage in local economies? Well, this is a trend we have seen for decades. So this goes way beyond COVID in that you have local labor markets where there is a dominant employer. Amazon's a big company in terms of customers buying things. Amazon can be a big employer if you are in an area that has one of the warehouses. I grew up in Indiana, close to an interstate. When I go home, there's all kinds of warehouses in place now or being built. They tend to pay above the local wage but then they have a lot of bargaining power over the workers. And, and that can lead to real problems, not just in terms of wages, but working conditions, right? Like we know from a lot of people that have worked in these plants or these warehouses, it's not an easy yeah. job. And John, you wonder if this is the new form of unionization, almost the dominance of these companies setting the marginal wage. Let's build on some of this, Tom, the Please. contribution of Card and Kruger to the real world, the real economy for good. Claudia, a quote of yours. I want economic policy to be good, like economists to do good in the world. Larry, you're referring to Larry Summers here, is something of a, I don't know, I see him as a roadblock to achieving that goal. That was in an interview with Politico magazine. Why do you think that, Claudia? Right. Well, this is this really is not about Larry. It's it's about the change that needs to happen in economics. I think if of a generation of economists, particularly in macroeconomics, there is a I have a mental model. I have a way the world should work and I'm going to keep going back to it. Uh, Larry did an interview with Noah Smith and he was really clear. I don't have a model. He has an intuition. And that comes from years of experience watching the economy. But I, the real contribution of the Nobel Prize winners today is to say, let's step back, let's go get the data, let's look at the world and not do introspection. It is too hard and can really lead you astray if you're doing that from the ivory towers in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So that's really, and Larry just happens to be the flag bearer of the old guard. And I just, particularly in this crisis, particularly in the way that different groups of people, marginalized workers, the ones who end up working at Amazon, they, they need economists to be out in the world looking at the data and not sitting back and using past experience, using intuition to make decisions. So that, that's what that 
concern that I'm raising is about. What's your advice, Claudia, then to A, students of economics right now who are just starting out, and B, much bigger question, I think, for policymakers at the Federal Reserve who have been conditioned by everything you just said? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so economics is all around us, right? It's not just listening to what the Fed's going to do, what the markets are doing. A really big debate that's happening right now that is absolutely using the tools of the prize winners today are the debates about what is causing the labor shortage. How important was unemployment insurance in that holding back of workers? There's a lot of debate on Friday about not seeing big numbers now that it earned early September, those benefits expired. And they're absolutely using those methods because we saw different states roll off their benefits at different points this summer. So these tools, they've been refined since they've been developed but, like, but economists are out there trying to answer the questions, the questions about people, about labor markets, that policymakers need to know so that they can make big decisions. Well, let's talk about the questions in the labor market. Participation has remained stubbornly low. We saw more evidence of that on Friday. Is that, again, transitory as we talk about so many of the shortages out there are, or is that something structural? Well, I said throughout this, COVID is the enemy of everything that is happening in our world. And it is absolutely the case in labor markets. Now, it's not the only factor. I think in the labor markets, and we actually see this a lot of places, what, whatever problems we were living with before COVID, those became so much worse, right? If you think about before COVID, there were a lot of parents that struggled to get childcare. It was often extremely unaffordable in areas of the country, like where I live outside of Washington, D.C. And then we have COVID and it becomes harder. It's less reliable. A lot of parents are concerned about it not being safe. And so that decision that was always hard, do you have like the one wage earner, often the mother who would make less wages, do you have her stay at home or does she go back to work? Right, like that got so much worse. And we saw a lot of, parents drop out of the labor force early on. And one of the disappointments on Friday was it's fall, schools are reopening. Mm -hmm. It's a little rocky because people, kids get sent home if a COVID exposure. Women didn't come back last month. September was yeah. supposed to be one of the big ones. So, so that's just one example. Claudia, is what you're saying helping make the case for some of the social policies on the table in terms of longer term economic spending in Congress? Child care is included in that. Right. So I think we're at the point now where we, we have seen this in so many places, the structural problems, the labor market in general, low wage workers had a lot of problems in terms of what they were able to bargain for before. So let's fix those. This crisis has amplified and made it so obvious that the inequalities, the inequities in our economy are they're holding us all back. Now, Congress has not done big future-looking, long-term investments in the country for a long time. And frankly, it is absolutely frustrating to see the whole debate about how many trillion dollars. We have a lot to do in this country. And sadly, I think Congress doesn't have a lot of pra practice recently at getting it done. Claudia, we've got to leave it there. We appreciate your time this morning. We really do. Thank you very much for being with us. Claudia Sam there of the Jane Family Institute and a whole wealth of experience, Tom, back at the Federal Reserve as well.
On the COVID, on the vaccine, I don't know where I sit, things are getting better. But where I sit maybe isn't the rest of America or the rest of the world. It is a world of vaccine protest, whether in Rome this weekend and thousands, Melbourne, Australia again, and others around the world, and the oddity in America of possible vaccine protests by businesses and by their employees. Joshua Sharstein joins him, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Joshua, are you surprised by vaccine protest? I'm not not surprised, given just how polarized the whole pandemic has been over the last year and a half. Um, but I think we have to realize that when there are a lot of cases, people see the problem right in front of them and they're more likely to go get vaccinated. When there are not a lot of cases, people wonder, well, you know, do I need to get vaccinated? And then there's so much misinformation out there that keeps them from getting vaccinated. So as we look to the future, and the good news that it looks like we're on the, you know, the right side of the Delta wave, it's coming down. Things look a little bit um, more optimistic going into the, the fall and winter. Um, but also, it may be that people will feel less likely to be vaccinated because of that. So mm -hmm. I think we're going to be seeing this and it might be industry by industry, particularly for industries where workers might leave. The general counsel or the chief medical officer of a given Fortune 500 uh, company dials 1-800-SHARFSTEIN and says, what should we do? How should business respond to vaccine protest? Yeah, I've been on the phone with uh, some businesses like that, some organizations, and it's really important to focus on countering misinformation. There is so much misinformation. I've done some you know, big kind of town halls with employees, and the questions come from truly out of left field um, with sometimes just almost no basis in reality whatsoever. And, you know, I think um, one of the, the insights I've learned from some experts in misinformation is that people like me, we tend to think we explain it once, people should understand. Meanwhile, the misinformation is coming at people morning, noon and night. So it's really important for employers to constantly be communicating different ways, different messengers, you know, um, people that their employees can relate to and be relentless because the misinformation is relentless. Well, this is no longer just about adults, Dr. Sharfstein. Obviously, we're awaiting an FDA decision on the vaccine for children that could come later this month. CBS and YouGov put out a poll over the weekend that even among vaccinated parents, only 61% of them are willing to have their children get a shot. Do you understand that hesitation? I think that it is um, a little premature to be making too much of those polls because we really haven't had a full airing of the data, full discussion with the advisory committee. You know, all we really have is a, a claim by the company at this point. So I think parents are, are right to be saying, OK, let's take it one step at a time. Now, just like with the adult vaccine, I think there'll be some people who jump out and want to vaccinate their kids early and others may be a little bit more in the wait and see camp. It's going to be really important for the FDA and CDC, not just to make a decision based on the evidence that they have now, but to explain how they're going to get more evidence, how they're going to be able to share that evidence so that people can see what's happening and ideally build confidence with more and more people over time. Is herd immunity still an achievable goal? Well, you know, to the extent that herd immunity means there's, there's not going to be a lot of COVID around, I think we're going to hopefully get there unless there's a big you know mutation in the virus but herd immunity doesn't mean no virus and it doesn't mean no risk and it doesn't mean there couldn't be 
uh, outbreaks here and there, particularly where there are pockets of people who are unvaccinated. Um, so I think, you know, the more likely scenario is that we will be living with the virus and hopefully we'll be living with a low level of the virus rather than a medium level of the virus. Tom, have you noticed that the messaging has changed on TV? The commercials are less about get a vaccine and much more about mental health. Did you notice that in the last week or so? I can't think of a single vaccine commercial that I've seen from New York State over the past week or so on yeah, TV. I think there are subtle shifts here. Part of it is the impatience of people and part of it is legitimate protest. I mean, what's fascinating to me is how will this amend when finally we get five-year-olds to 11-year-olds? Uh, uh, you, know, you know, John, I have to admit, a seven-year-old descended on the house this weekend. Yeah. It was an odd and beautiful thing. We tried to trade the two dogs for the seven-year-old, but that didn't work that out. Didn't, I imagine that didn't work out. And, so. You know, to be honest, John, as an idiot, I was confronted with what others like Ms. Abramowitz face each and every day. Let me get they to the doctor on house this. Unvaccinated. Doctor, have you noticed that? Am I noticing something or nothing at all? I see a lot more now about mental health than I do about get a vaccine. Um, I have not particularly noticed that, but I'm not maybe watching TV in New York. I, I would say, though, mental health is extremely important. And, you know, this pandemic has affected people in so many different ways and it's been so difficult in so many different ways. It's really important to pay attention to that, too. But, you know, a vaccine is a path to fewer cases, which hopefully will, you know, help everyone's mental health. Doctor, thank you. Dr. Joshua Shafstein there of Johns Hopkins, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, Vice Dean. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.